another episode of Theology Doesn't Suck. As always, I'm Josh Patterson, and with me is Andy Herman. And uh, I'm a. Are you calling me a dope? No, I was saying it is dope. I was describing. Oh, it, okay. It was an adjective. It's like. So you're using like a a slang, like like what the youths would say, like, "Oh, dude, that that skateboard trick was so dope." Exactly right. Yeah, I learned it yesterday at youth group. The okay. kids taught me. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, another word that I've heard tossed around a lot lately is "fly." Oh, that's fly. Um, bro. Or you know, a phrase, <laughs> a good phrase. How about "off the chain"? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> off the chain. Oh, bro, that. Bro, that um, Ollie was off the chain. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I've so, ever heard somebody say that. <laughs> as, you can, <laughs> as you can tell, Josh and I are in touch with the young people. Yeah. And uh, we understand youth culture and the like. So, Ex- Except, dude, there's this game that, like, all the kids, like, on the oh, soccer no. team that I oh, coach no. play, all the kids at youth group called Fortnite. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> I don't play it. I literally, uh, I guess I'm not cool enough to play it. All they I do is hate... like Fortnite dances and Dude, talk about Fortnite. Oh my gosh. And I don't know. It's terrible. I like as a game itself. I I've never played it. I feel like I might enjoy Fortnite, but I hate it just because of the cultural phenomenon that it's become. Yeah, like it's kids are obsessed with it, man. Like I was. When I was working at the church in Maryland, like one of our students over the summer, he was telling us he would be staying up. He'd be staying up until like six in the morning playing Fortnite. <laughs> I was like, dude, get a life. Go outside. You know, like do <laughs> do something like it's OK to play a video game for a couple hours here and there. But like it should not be your entire freaking life, man. It's yeah, it's insane. It's I crazy. really hope that I really hope that Fortnite goes the way of Pokemon Go. Oh, yeah, it just kind of fades out. You know, just fades out after a while. Although, I feel like its period of ultra-popularity has already been much longer than (laughs) Pokemon Go's was. That's true. Um, But I hope hope that it eventually dies down. Because these kids, dude, they're like obsessed (laughs) with it. Dude, they always, crazy. always ask me, like, oh, did you start playing Fortnite yet? Did you start playing Fortnite? Uh, whatever it's called, Fortnite? Like, no. I Oh, I read they... a... Go for it. I read a <laughs> funny story online the other day, actually, of... It was it was a story... I don't, it wasn't from someone I know, but it was a story saying, like... From someone saying they were in a video game store, and there was a woman in line next to them who was really annoyed, and she said, like, my son really wants this game Fork Knife. <laughs> and I've been looking everywhere for it, and I just can't find it. And no one has it. And and he was like, "Oh, I think I think that's Fortnite that you're looking for." And she's like, "No, no, it's definitely Fork Knife." And <laughs> and so he was just like, "Well, sorry, we don't have can't that help one." You. Yeah. Well, no, he didn't work there. He was just a customer. Oh wow. But it was just like, well, bummer. I guess that's really funny. She, you know, feel bad for the kid a little bit, but you know, maybe it's for the best. Maybe the Lord is providentially guiding that kid's mother <laughs> to not get the game so that he'll actually have a life and learn how to do things, you know, like tie a knot and uh hunt and uh <laughs> Those are the uh, those are the three things throw, you can do in throw life. Throw a football and throw a football. <laughs> he'll do he'll learn how to throw a football, oh, tie knots and that's hunt. Funny. 
Hunt, um, tie knots, and throw footballs. Yep. What about play hockey? The three. Uh, only if I he lives in like Minnesota or Canada, because that's you true. Know, that's true. Everywhere else, no one knows how to play hockey really. But and they don't care. Did you see that? There was actually a video um, that I saw pre- recently. Speaking of hockey, that was pretty cool too, though. Of uh, there's like there's one hockey team in Kenya. I guess I think it was Kenya. There's yeah, only it was. one hockey team in the entire country. And did you see this video too? Uh-huh. Where they like flew the whole team out to either the U.S. or Canada or something, and they like set up a game where they got to play with uh, Nathan McKinnon and Sidney Crosby. Yeah. And they bought them like all new uniforms, and then they donated a bunch of money to like uh, support a youth hockey league in Kenya to help mm-hmm. develop the sport there. I thought that was yeah. really cool. That That's neat. awesome. That's one of the reasons, man, that I really like uh, hockey in the NHL because, like, the community um, that's around hockey is just so so awesome. Like, it's yeah, all about it really you is. Know, helping other people learn how to play hockey. And, um, like, there's just a culture of, like, this is such a beautiful game. We want to share it with people. Kind of like yeah, it's Christianity. Awesome. <laughs> but, kind of like Calvinism. You know what I love to share with people? <laughs> oh, yeah. Calvinism. Is Calvinism. <laughs> I feel like you have... Awkward transition. Dropped in a few throughout this little intro bit. Like, dropped in little hints of, like stuff that we might oh, yeah. be talking about today like when i was talking about god providentially guiding the mother <laughs> exactly like that exactly I think, yeah yeah i think like this conversation that we're about to have was probably predestined uh to happen so. yeah yeah definitely so so if you guys can't <laughs> can't guess or maybe you've never heard of it before today uh we're gonna talk about and, and try to answer the question what is calvinism dun dun <laughs> yeah calvinism um i'm excited for some of those people who have grown up or you know been saved in like arminian churches churches that are kind of maybe just mainstream evangelical calvinism might even be kind of a bad word that's true um like i know when i was a, when i was a christian in high school calvinism like i didn't even really know what calvinism was i just knew that i thought it was stupid yeah because <laughs> that's what everyone told like everyone in my church was just like Cal- calvinists think you're a robot and they're dumb so <laughs> that's what i think about you uh, andy that you're a robot and you're dumb wait sorry i, I thought <laughs> i'm confused now because i thought i was the calvinist so i thought i thought you were a robot oh now it's getting into inception this is too confusing yeah we're anyway um <laughs> so if if you didn't know um your your good old pal Andy here, that's me. Um, I am a staunch Calvinist within the larger context of being reformed in my theology, which we'll get into a little later what that means. Um, but I'm a Calvinist, and Josh, I, you probably wouldn't quite classify yourself as a Calvinist, right? Yeah, definitely not. Well, I don't. I want to say definitely okay. not because that makes me sound like yeah, uh, forget Calvinism because I don't think that but, way about but, it. But yeah, no. <laughs> but you wouldn't. You wouldn't put yourself in that theological camp, right? So, no. So today we just wanted to take some time today. I think to Josh is gonna kind of ask me some questions and maybe offer some pushback a little bit. But we're just gonna kind of unpack what what Calvinism is, what it isn't, maybe some misconceptions and so on and so forth. Yeah, I dig it, man. I'm excited because, like, genuinely, when I first, kind of like you touched on, when I first encountered Calvinism, like, it kind of was a bad word. Um, or, like, yeah. it's, you know, it, it's, you know, I was kind of standoffish with it or I had all these misconceptions. 
Um, and now, like I, you know, I'm, I don't want to say I fully understand it, but like I, I definitely have a much better grasp on it. You know, just even by just like being friends with you and our conversations. Um, yeah. So like now, you know, I'm at a place now where I respect it, and uh, I like to make jokes about it. It's funny to mess with you. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. excited for this episode. We, we do like to joke about it. Yeah. So. Um, I'm excited about it too. I think it'll be a cool conversation. And I mean, we've talked about this kind of stuff before, but it's been a while, I think, since we really dug into it. So, oh, for sure. Um, if you don't mind, Josh, I was kind of thinking I would just start off with a little background and going over kind of some of the basic ideas of Calvinism. Yeah, go for uh, it. Before we before we dig into some of the more more intense stuff. But so, for those of you who don't know, those of you who are listening who maybe aren't aware, Calvinism is named for a protestant reformer a protestant theologian named john calvin big surprise there right (laughs) yeah and so i know so john calvin he was he was a protestant theologian and pastor in the 1500s into uh in the protestant reformation and so he he was kind of like the second generation of reformers so martin luther started the protestant reformation and Calvin was kind of the next generation. And he was in uh, Switzerland, whereas Luther was in Germany. Um, but Calvin is really known for... He's one of the first, like, real great theologians of the Reformation. Because Luther and some of those other guys, you know, they were they had, they had they brought the fire, the heat. They, like, <laughs> got things going. But Calvin really sat down and systematically thought out his beliefs. And he wrote a big old book called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. Massive uh, which book. Is, massive book and which is it's just a giant systematic theology really um but it was one of the like the first really well thought out well done protestant theologies and so calvin had a massive role in really even for those of people who aren't calvinists and he influenced a lot of our our beliefs today he influenced a lot of protestant theology and even mm-hmm. honestly western culture like calvin was has been a huge influence on the thinking of uh, western culture um, but as a Calvinist, when we normally talk about Calvinism, uh, first of all, Calvinists are not people who follow John Calvin instead of Jesus. Okay, so a lot, a lot of oh, times shoot. people like to throw throw that out there. You know, like <laughs> you Calvinists, you follow John Calvin, but I follow Jesus. You know, is that have how you heard they that, talk? Josh? I have. That's how that's, they talk. I think that's yeah. how they talk. That's how I talk too. Yeah, They're, like their voice gets super low and weird. Um, wow. But. But, you know, it, when I, if I say I'm a Calvinist, I'm not saying, oh, yeah, I follow John Calvin instead of Jesus. It's just a convenient way of conveying a set of ideas that I hold, which yes. were happened to be taught by John Calvin. Although, uh, you know, it's not <laughs> it doesn't mean that I'm like I worship John Calvin or something like that. So just want to clear the air on that first. But um, when we talk about Calvinism today, generally what Calvinism stands for are what are known as the five points of Calvinism. So the five points of Calvinism are, I'm, I'm going to go through what they are real quick and I'll explain them a little bit more, but they're, it, they're conveniently remembered by an acronym, TULIP, you know, like the Ooh. flower, T-U-L-I-P. Yeah, TULIP. So the five points of Calvinism, the five beliefs that are basically classified as Calvinism are total depravity, uh, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints so those are the five points of calvinism five beliefs that 
people hold who call themselves Calvinists generally. And interestingly enough, although I would argue that Calvin did hold all of these beliefs, he never taught them in that system. So even John Calvin, the one mm-hmm. who Calvinism is named after, he never taught these beliefs like in this format, these five points. Um, but actually, these five points of Calvinism were developed as a response to the theology of Jacob Arminius, who you might recognize a connection there, you know, Arminian theology. If you're not a Calvinist, you're probably an Arminian. Um, And so the five points of Calvinism, like J. Patty, the five (laughs) points of Calvinism were actually not Calvin's specific five points, but they were developed as a response to what Arminius had to say and what his followers had to say. Um, but so, so I just want to get in and explain a little bit what these five points are. And maybe, Josh, here's where I think maybe you can offer a little bit of pushback yeah, and absolutely. critique as we go. But so, so the first one, total depravity. Um, as a Calvinist, when I say total depravity, what I mean is that every part of our nature as Christians is affected by sin, right? There's no part of us that is not sinful. So when we look at scripture, uh, we see that God, man was created right in relationship with God and created sinless, but then we fell. And, and as Christ, as Calvinists and many Christians would believe, you know, we're, we've been polluted with sin ever mm-hmm. since then. And so every part of us is affected by this fall. Every part of us has been tinged with sin, right? So scripture talks about our spiritual state as, as death. It's not just like we're kind of sinful. We have a little sin, right? We're totally spiritually dead. Right? Yeah. We are absolutely sinful and, and unable to turn to God. So another big piece of total depravity, along with every part of our of our humanity being touched by sin, it also means that we're unable to turn to God on our own. So when we're totally depraved, that means that because we're spiritually dead, I don't have the ability in my in my natural sinful state to turn to God and repent of my sin or to put my faith in Christ. So as, as a totally depraved sinner, and, and we believe every person is this way, right? We don't have the ability to put our faith in Christ and to turn to God on our own. So, I don't know, Josh, what do you, do you agree with that point, or would you push back on it? What do you think about that? Yeah, so that, I mean, <laughs> this is the one I think, this one and, and probably, I guess, the election bit are the ones that people tend to get tripped up on. Um, but I think, I mean, I think I would agree that you know we're sinful people we're sinful in nature you know we've fallen um you know for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god um and so we're all sinful what i struggle with is is the bit about like not being able to uh turn to god and i know Uh we're going to get into this in a little bit but i know uh like i would say the holy spirit plays a, a huge part in that um yeah but i think that like what I get tripped up on is I still think that there has to be some level of, um, you know, a person being able to, um, you know, turn to, to have that, the option, the ability, I guess, to, to, to turn to God. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, and so I would say that when someone does turn to God, when someone does put their faith in Christ, they are genuinely choosing to do so. Okay. Um, and we'll get into this more kind of in a later point, I think, probably. But but I, I think that Scripture is pretty clear that we're unable to do so without the Spirit first changing our hearts and turning us towards God. Okay. So, I'm, and and th- there's a lot of places in Scripture we could go to talk about this, but the main one that I'll stick with now just for time's sake um, is in, Eph- in Ephesians 2, right? It talks about how 
uh, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Mm-hmm. And so, so when scripture talks about our sinful condition, it's not that we were wounded and needed a little help, but it's that we were absolutely dead. And so, uh, I think it was R.C. Sproul who I heard this like kind of image from first, but like if there's someone, if you're out on a rescue boat and you find a dead person in the water, throwing just throwing them a life preserver and asking <laughs> them to grab on isn't going to do much, right? Yeah, I got so, you. It's not that God just throws us throws up a, us a life preserver and helps us out. It's that you know he he dives down into the bottom of the ocean, pulls out our cold dead body, and breathes life into it. And so, yeah, a dead person a dead person can't bring themselves back to life, and that's what conversion to Christ is. It's it's new life, and so the only way that happens is by a supernatural work of God. It doesn't happen because we decide to bring ourselves back to life. Sure, yeah, I think that's kind of cool too because I think. Um... Like, I, I like that image a lot, actually. And I think uh, kind of what, what I was going uh, to say is that what's what's cool about that is I think Christianity um, seems to be like one of one of the only religions where God steps down. And would you say God then is pursuing us rather than we're pursuing God? Because God is, you know, if God is the active participant, you know, diving in and, and pulling our dead body out of the water... God is pursuing us rather than us necessarily seeking out him or is it more nuanced than that yeah I think I think in a sense that's right on like I think after conversion there's an, a sense in which you know we're called to pursue God and and seek to follow him and all that but in terms of if we're talking about conversion how we become saved how we're reconciled with God I think it's absolutely right we we don't seek God right there's no one in fact scripture says no one seeks after god so in our natural sinful state none of us naturally seek god it's god who seeks us out and calls us to himself okay i I would agree i think it's cool that christianity is the only religion i think that has that every other religion it's about you finding your way to god but you know in the in christianity which i believe is the true religion you know it's, it's actually god who seeks us out it's it's God who calls us to himself and draws us to himself before mm-hmm. he ever calls us to follow him. Right. And that's pretty amazing. That is pretty cool. Yeah. So um, that's kind of the first <laughs> the first uh, letter of the of Tulip, the first of the five points of Calvinism. Uh, the second one is unconditional election. And this is one that a lot of, I don't know, I feel like a lot of people like this one because it's nice. Um, <laughs> unconditional election so unconditional election really all that is it's the idea that god chose chose the elect he chose those who would be saved uh in eternity past not based on anything that we would do not based on anything in us but based on something that we uh, we have no idea basically why why he chose the elect but it's it's unconditional in a sense. It's not based on any inner condition in us. It's not based on anything we do. It's not based on who we are. It's not even based on our heart. Like God didn't choose us because some people would have a better heart than others, but he chose us simply according to his good pleasure and uh, not based on any merit in us. So that's unconditional election. Mm-hmm. Any And I don't know, what would you want to push back on that one at all? Or how? what would be your thoughts on unconditional election? No, I mean, I think it's, um, I mean, I think the Bible is very clear that, uh, you know, that God loves us unconditionally. Um, yeah. I, that, I, that I would talk about it that way. I would say God loves us unconditionally. But I do think there's a difference election. though. Okay. I think there's a, I think, 
because I mean I do agree that in a sense you know God's God's electing love is unconditional but I think you have to include that element of election in there because we're not talking when I say unconditional election I'm only <laughs> and this is this is we're going to get into some of what people don't like about Calvinism again but I'm right. only talking about the elect right I'm only talking right. about those who are going to be saved so God didn't unconditionally elect everyone right Right. He only he only unconditionally elected the elect, right? He chose who would be saved beforehand, not based on any merit in us. And the thing is, like that should I think that's a beautiful, beautiful doctrine because I think it, it should create humility in us. Yeah. Right. It should it should cause us to be so grateful and so in awe because we didn't do anything to deserve God's grace. We didn't do anything to deserve our faith in Christ, but it's given to us as a free gift from God, not based oh, on yeah. anything in us, but just based on his good pleasure. And um, and one thing I would want to point out, too, is how this – I think all the five points of Calvinism kind of build on each other. So uh, unconditional election is directly tied to total depravity because if if you agree that we're totally depraved and we can't choose God on our own, there's no other way for us to be saved but for God to choose us right. and draw us to himself. So um, I think it's beautiful that God draws us to himself not based on anything in us and it's just a free gift. But, yeah, I, think but I don't I, know. Would, would you – Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, I think, I mean, the, like, I get the tie there and I think like the logic checks out. Um, and like, it's funny cause I, I mean, I would teach that like when I, when I speak to students or, you know, in church or whatever, and, um, yep. you know, even in churches that are not reformed, I think people talk like tend to talk this way that, you know, there's nothing that we can do to earn, you know, our salvation. There's nothing, you know, it's completely a hundred percent of free gift from God. You know, we can't, yeah. um, you know, make God love us or hate us any more or any less. God, like, you know, it's it's, so it's an unconditional to get. It's a free gift. The unconditional part is talked about, but I think where we would probably disagree is the election. Is the part. election part exactly right? Because I don't. I mean, I don't. You wouldn't agree that God has eternally elected those who would be saved, right? Like, you wouldn't agree that God, in eternity past, has already elected who would be saved. Yeah, I don't think so. Cause, and I mean, for me, and I don't know if we have time to, if this is a rabbit trail or not, but I think for me, when we start talking about that, it opens up like this idea in my mind of like double predestination, where if God, yep, uh, right, which is, I mean, that's a part of it, but like where if God chose uh, those who are going to go to heaven, then he also predestined um, people for hell as well. And I personally, I struggle yeah. with that. Um and like we, I mean, we we might talk about that a little bit more in the the next bit, the limited atonement stuff. But like, uh, yeah, I just I struggle with, uh, and I know you would you would talk about it differently, but I struggle with like an all loving God. Um, like, I mean, seemingly what it seems like to me that says is that God created people who are screwed right out of the get go, and that doesn't seem too uh, too yeah. loving. I think the difference I would want to emphasize. Um, is that God actively elects people to be part of his people and to spend eternity with him, whereas their condemnation to hell is, in a sense, more of a a passive, like, basically, he's giving them the results of their... He's giving them, basically, what they deserve as sinners. And so it's not... You know what I'm saying? So, So it's not unjust that God doesn't elect some people to hell... And as a result, they're just, or sorry, doesn't elect some people to heaven, doesn't elect some people into Christ, because those people who he doesn't elect are just getting what they deserve as sinners. And so that's what each one of us deserves as sinners, right? Each one of us who is 
you know, who has sinned against God, which is all of us, deserves his wrath and deserves judgment. And so it's not, I don't think it's unloving for God to give people that judgment, right? It's what it is, is it's a gracious and amazing gift that he would save anyone from that judgment. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think God can still be loving and give people the judgment they deserve. I don't think that's unloving. Okay. You know, whereas it's just amazingly merciful and gracious that he would save some people from the judgment that they deserve. Okay. Uh, and that's the kind of light that I would want to cast in is it's not that it's not that God is making some people go to hell. It's that he is giving them what they deserve as sinners. Right. Which is what we all deserve as sinners. And then amazingly graciously somehow not giving some of us what we deserve as sinners, but giving us himself and giving us eternal life with Christ. Yeah, sure. Um, what? Yeah, no, I I like it. I I um I get what you're saying. I like it. What what would you say if you think about like, um, I'm trying to think of of a good metaphor here because this just came to me. What about if you thought about somebody, uh, like who created, um, I don't know, like they created something where, um, I don't know, just say for whatever reason they created a a burning building that was on fire. And um, created all these people and put them in it, and then yeah. um, was like, okay, I'm going to save some of these people. Great, that looks really beautiful. But also, you're the one who created the problem that you then have to save them from. Like, but how see, would, I would do you see. So what I, mean? I would disagree with. I think I see what you're saying, but I think the metaphor is flawed because oh, sure. obviously, like the the building being on fire would represent sin, and I would say that it's not well. While God obviously allowed sin to come about in his creation, I don't think that God is the author of sin, right? It's, it's right. man who brought sin into our world. And so it's man who, in your metaphor, started the fire. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, it's not God who started the fire. It's man who started the fire. Okay. Uh, so, you know, to contradict Billy Joel, we did start the fire. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, but, and, and so it's not... And it, it really, it's not even like we just accidentally started a fire. It's like, it's more like God made the building and then we went in the building and God was like, hey, here, there's gasoline and matches in this one room. Don't mess with those. And then we went into that room and we poured the gasoline everywhere and we struck the matches. And then we're like, oh crap. And so... You know, it's our own fault that we did that. We, I mean, and of course, even this metaphor, I don't feel like conveys how much we deserve judgment for our own sin. No, I got, um, I get what you're saying though. But Metaphors you get my point. Like flawed. it's, yeah, it's, it's our responsibility. We're the ones who did it, and it's gracious. We all deserve punishment for what we did, but God is gracious enough to save some of, to take the punishment that some of us deserve, and, uh, and and bring us into eternal life with him. And so he doesn't owe any of us eternal life. He doesn't owe any of us mercy. Right. It's rather what, what we all deserve is judgment. And he graciously doesn't give some of us judgment. Right. No, I got you, man. And but, so like, uh, I guess yeah. to you, it's, you would say, cause I just, this goes back to think that like, um, like the reason then you would say that God created people to bring glory to himself. Right. Like yep. that's, that's yeah, the, absolutely. Is that the what is that the Westminster Confession of Faith, right? The Westminster Confession, yeah, it's uh, point one says that you know our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Yeah. Okay, so like, because I mean, I was just trying to think through too, like with with creation, if God 
you know, created um, Earth and then, uh, you know, put people on it knowing that they were going to mess up and, um, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, I guess it makes sense then if if God was creating um, the Earth to, to glorify himself. That yeah. makes sense to me. Sorry, yeah. I was just, I'm speaking out loud right now. I'm I'm thinking through something. Yeah, I'm just thinking, um, thinking through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I think it does all. I do think it all fits together beautifully. Um, oh yeah, for sure. I would anyway, say I, that Reformed theology definitely at least flows logically. <laughs> thanks. It's a, it's a cool thanks. system. I get it. Um. So I guess maybe we should should we move on to the L in tulip? Yeah, just limited for the sake atonement. of because uh, we have. We have many things to cover, and I'm sure some of this stuff we'll circle back around to. Right. So, L, I feel like this is probably the point that gets the most flack out of yeah. all of them. Uh, limited atonement. Um, some people like to call it definite atonement because they think it sounds better. I, I'm indifferent, really. Hmm. Um, but basically, what limited atonement means, what we mean by that, is that Christ's atonement, Christ's sacrifice on the cross was only for the elect so his 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 payment for sin on the cross was only for those who are going to be saved he Mm -hmm. didn't die for he didn't die for the sins of every single person ever he only died for the sins of those who will be saved and so a lot of people recoil at that because yeah that that sounds really bad to them but here's here's where i think there's a few a few ways we can look at this that i think help it make sense so the first one is if we uh what the first way i heard limited atonement explained to me that i thought was helpful by one of my professors um was this so if if christ died for all the sins of everyone then why are some people not saved because if christ if christ took the punishment for the sins of every single person who ever lived then shouldn't they be forgiven of all their sins? Like, shouldn't God, shouldn't God just let it go? Right. <laughs> because Christ already paid the punishment for those sins. Yeah. So, so if Christ, and if Christ died for the sins of every person ever, if he died for all the sins of everyone and some people aren't saved, that means that God punished Christ for sins that he's going to punish people for again. Okay. Right. Because, if they're not going to be saved, they're going to face judgment for their sins. And so that means that the sins are being punished twice. <laughs> sure. So, no, yeah, I so that's you. one of the, and so I don't know. Does that make sense to you so far? Do, are you tracking with me? Yeah. It, oh, I totally, it makes sense. I don't necessarily agree with it, but it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So, or, or, and another way to look at it too, another way that's helpful to look at it, I think to look at limited atonement, um, is this idea that because God is a Trinity, right? And the Trinity, the father, son, and Holy spirit are perfectly in sync. Mm -hmm. That means that all the work that the Trinity does in salvation is perfectly in sync. Okay. And so because the, because God, the father elects only a specific number of people. And this, of course you have to be, if, if you don't believe that you wouldn't agree with this whole line of reasoning, but right. if you agree that God, the father has elected people to salvation, if God has chosen who he's going to save, if he has an elect people who is calling to himself, then it wouldn't make sense for the son to go out and try to save people who the father isn't going to save. Okay. 
So if the son, if the son, if the father elects a specific people for himself and he's already decreed who he's going to save, then it wouldn't make sense for Jesus as the son to come down and just die for everyone anyway. Yeah. Right. Because, because God works in sync perfectly as a Trinity, you know, the son will die for those who the father has elected. Sure. Because he's, he's dying to save those who the father has decreed will be saved. And so that's another way to look at it that I think is helpful is that the Trinity works perfectly in sync. And so uh, the God, the son isn't going to try to save people who God, the father is like, no, you don't get to save those people. Mm-hmm. Right. God, the Trinity is perfectly in sync. And so it's going, they're going to, or he is going, God is going to pronouns are hard with the Trinity. sometimes. <laughs> but, uh, God is going to, you know, work, work all things together in a perfect unity in the work of salvation. So yeah. I don't know what would be what would be your pushback though because I'm I'm sure that we'll have disagreements on limited atonement. What would your pushback be on what I've said about limited atonement? Yeah, so like I think it makes sense. Like I think the logic of what you're saying is right. I just think that yep. and maybe I don't know if this is going to sound heretical or not, but I think maybe uh like God's love or Jesus's uh you know, dying on the cross or whatever for our sins maybe doesn't necessarily make sense in the way that you're talking uh-huh. about. Like I would I kind of think about God's love as, or, you know, what Jesus did on the cross. It was like, um, like all giving, like God is, uh, like pouring, you know, his entire self out, all giving, uh, love. And then, um, to me, it more, it more so makes sense to me that then God affords people the opportunity to choose not to respond to his love. And so, Uh um, does that make sense? So like, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So like, I think, um, like God pours himself out completely. He's all giving, knowing yep. that there are people who are not going to respond, you know, positively to that. But I think God takes that risk. Like I, and to me, you know, to some people that might seem like, well, that's illogical or that doesn't, you know, that doesn't match. That makes Jesus suffering gratuitous. But I think I would flip that and say to me, that makes Jesus's suffering beautiful because God is, was willing to step down and pour himself out completely, knowing that there were going to be people who uh, were not going to love him back, who were not going to choose to follow Christ and, and enter relationship with him. But God um, was willing to do that because he wanted to uh, to like afford the opportunity to everybody. So that that would be my pushback. That's how I think I think differently. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I, I see. Am what I you're going to hell, there, Andy? I, think, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. No. Um, but. I, what I would want to push back, I mean, I would want to push back scripturally speaking too, because I think scripture does clearly teach that God elects who he's going to save that, uh, and that G- Jesus talks about even, you know, that he, he has not come for everyone, but those who the father has given to him. Yeah. And so I think there's a clear idea of election in scripture that the father elects. And then at the same time, I would want to say that I, I do think that Jesus, Jesus dying on the cross is an extravagant radical show of love as well. Right. Because it's not something that's deserved by anyone. Right. Um, but I think the difference is I, I would I would want to push back and while there aren't like any verses that, you know, are just like straight up in the Bible, like, oh, Jesus only died for there's no phrase <laughs> in the Bible that says literally Jesus only died for the elect. Um and I don't think you need to believe that to be saved. I think it's clearly I think it comes into clear view when you look at kind of the whole scope of scripture and that uh in that it it would make no sense for the son of God to come down and die for those he knew he wasn't going to save. 
Yeah. And and not only that, I because I think I think one of the important points to bring up too is I think that would actually make God unjust. Okay. If if God the Father sent his son to die for sins that he is going to punish again, I think that makes God extremely unjust because he's already punished those sins once. Why isn't that enough? Okay. Why isn't Jesus' atonement for those sins on the cross enough, right? And so and so I think you also run into that problem. Not that all Armenians believe that God is unjust or anything like that, but I think if you logically think it through, that's a problem you run into is that God is punishing sins in Christ and then saying, oh, well, you know, I'll just punish them again because you decided not to accept it. Right. Um, and I think that's a problem as well. What about when people use language like um, like that God was taking on the sin you know the sins of the world onto himself rather than just yeah like like this is going to be a like a like a caricature um and you can push back on it but like do you think because it seems like kind of what it is is then like oh you know we all did some bad stuff so god had to punch jesus in the nose you know so that some people could be saved i I, that's like kind of seems what it what it sounds like i don't think that's necessarily fair and i don't think that's what you're saying but like I get, I kind of get that picture in my mind. So like, rather than yeah, well, like I, God's willingness to to take sin onto Himself, you know, our sins onto Himself, does that make sense? No, I get what you're saying. I mean, it, I think it's it's easy to caricature it, but I do think that I mean, the reality is, you know, humans have rebelled against God, and God is just and perfect and holy, and He He will not be in the presence of sin, and so sin needs to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. because of who god is you know he needs to deal with sin and his just perfect holy character doesn't allow him to just look the other way and so and he i mean that sounds when you say doesn't allow him to i get that can sound kind of weird but you know, god won't <laughs> no, look gee. the other way on sin because because he's perfect and because he's holy he's he won't just ignore sin he won't ignore evil and because of that you know because he's a just god he punishes sin and sin deserves punishment and so and a lot of times I feel like we don't really get that. We don't understand how our sin actually deserves punishment. Like yeah. each one of us is a sinner. If you if you believe scripture, right, then you you believe that you deserve death for what yeah, you've done. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's not like it's not like I've just messed up a few times. Like I deserve death because of my sin. And and so God does take himself. God the Son takes our sins upon himself. It's not like God the Father is forcing him to, right? God's a, as the Trinity works in perfect harmony. Right. And so God the Son takes our sins upon himself in perfect accordance with the will of the Father and atones for those sins, right? Takes the punishment that is justly ours and and pays for it on the cross. And so I I don't think it's like God the Father forcing God the Son to do something he doesn't want to do. It's a perfect work of the Trinity in perfect harmony. Yeah. Um, but I think to maintain that perfect harmony, if you're going to look at how scripture talks about election, then you lose that harmony. If you don't also say that election carries over into the atonement and then also on top of, you know, the other justice issues that I talked about earlier. Sure. Um, for now, I guess I'm sorry to cut you off if you had more to say but we're no that's I, I good we're already going yeah we long, should we so, should keep uh, going we'll, we'll keep moving we'll keep it moving it's a big um, topic it's it's a good one though it's a big topic so i uh that's the the l in its limited home at the i in the five points of calvinism is irresistible grace and so uh irresistible grace basically is just the idea that if god's spirit uh 
if God, the Holy Spirit, calls you to himself, if God decides to save you, uh, you're not going to be able to say no. It's not <laughs> like God's going to draw you to himself and then you're going to be like, eh, no thanks, God, I'm good. Yeah. Uh, if God draws you to himself by his spirit, you're going to be saved. Um, and so when when you talk about this point, I think one of the common critiques of, that people will bring is it makes people into robots, like we have no free will, blah, 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 blah. Um, <laughs> but what I would kind uh, of, the way that I like to talk about, <laughs> the way that I like to talk about irresist, sorry, I know that was very dismissive. That was very rude of me. I'm sorry. It was funny. Uh, <laughs> just so everyone listening to this episode knows, I'm, I don't think, I mean, maybe Josh would disagree. I don't think I'm a cage stager. Like, I don't talk about this stuff all the time. No, I'm just don't. passionate about it. So since we're doing the episode on it, I'm talking about it. But I feel I like, like I'm it, pretty though. tame. I like the passion because um, if you were not passionate about it, then people wouldn't care. Like, if you were just telling me stuff and you seemed like true. you didn't care, I wouldn't care. Like, all right. So, like, like, you make I me want to like, know because you care about it. You're I feel passionate. Like, well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I feel like we're going to have some listeners who don't like me as much after this episode, but that's okay. Everybody um, should still like Andy. He's a really nice guy. Oh, thanks. Josh is a nice guy, too, for the record, for my Calvinist homies uh, <laughs> who might be listening. Um, so Irresistible Grace, anyway, though, the way I like to talk about it is that if God decides to draw you by his spirit to himself, like, you're not you're not going to say no because there's no way you'd want to like if God reveals himself to you in a saving way to draw you to Christ and reveals to you the beauty of Christ, then you're not going to want to say no. And so it's irresistible, not because you're not like, I believe that we do genuinely choose Christ when we're saved. We genuinely choose to put our faith in Christ, but it's only because the spirit draws us to him first. And so it's irresistible because of how amazing Christ is and how, perfect god is and when we when we encounter him like that there's no way we would ever want to say no yeah um so i don't know what what your thoughts on irresistible grace are i mean it kind of the thing is it kind of lines up with the other one so if you believe in election and if you believe in limited atonement then irresistible grace just makes sense because once again it's 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 god's spirit working in perfect accord with the atonement of the son and with the election of the father right um and so I don't know. Do you have much specific pushback on that point, or any any clarification? Or I mean, no, not nothing super spe- uh, Pacific specific. Pac- um, it's just um, I'm trying to think. I know like some people would talk about. And, I mean, this is just different. Just to you know, to throw a different perspective out there. Some people would talk yeah. about like I know C.S. Lewis talked about like if the the gates of hell are locked, they're locked from the inside, saying that like the people that are there are choosing to be there. Um, and I know, uh, yeah. like I know one time in college, uh, with one of my professors, uh, we did like a thought experiment. Um, we're like, we're talking about, uh, like, you know how the Bible uses uh, the language of like fire as purification, like being purified, yeah. going through that process, being uh-huh. reconciled to one another. Um, so that we're kind of doing this thought experiment, like, are there people that are so egotistical, so self-centered that want to do their, you know, do things their way that they're not willing to go through that purification process, so to speak, of reconciliation with others and things like that. So, like, they choose to turn away from God because, I guess you would say, because their hearts are so hard, you know? Um, Yeah. That they're, even though they can see God, they don't want want that. They're so self-focused, they don't don't want that, so they do resist. Um, That's just, like, a different, you know, a different thought process. I haven't, you know, thought through that one. 
uh, super yeah. loud. I just wanted to throw out something a little bit different, um, you know, to contrast it with for people to think about too. Totally. And I, and I get what you're saying there. I do. I mean, I don't think that C.S. Lewis is theologically sound in every respect. Like, right. I think he has some <laughs> sketchy stuff too. Um, I know he's really popular and I like a lot of his stuff, but I, he's not like an amazing theologian in my opinion. Yeah. Um, he's a great author though. The Great uh, Divorce is, would be a good book to point people great towards book. to talk I about. I love that book. Yeah. It's a great... But I also kind of disagree with the doctrine of hell that he seems to put forth in that book. Right. Um, but anyway, besides that point, I do agree. <laughs> in, it's interesting, even though C.S. Lewis wasn't a Calvinist, I do feel like The Great Divorce is kind of a Calvinist book. Um, <laughs> That's really interesting. In the sense that I do, I, I do agree with him that people who who are condemned people who are not saved do choose that. I yeah. do believe that I do believe that. And here's the thing though, is I believe that without the aid of the Holy spirit, without God's saving grace given to us by the spirit, I believe that every one of us would choose that every single one of us going back to total depravity would choose our sin and would choose to rebel against God. And that's how okay. we naturally choose to be right. Uh, naturally we choose to be enemies of God. As Romans one talks about, we suppress the knowledge of God and exchange the true God for idols. And so I, I, we do genuinely choose that, but it's also the only choice we ever would make because of our sinful nature. Mm-hmm. And so in the same way, when when God does save someone with his grace by his spirit, uh, that grace is irresistible. I think it's a genuine choice. But once God gives you that saving grace by his spirit, once again, I think it's the only choice you would ever make. Even right. though it's a genuine choice, it's the only choice you would make. And so I think that's where people sometimes get hung up on this idea that in order to make a genuine choice, you have to have libertarian free will. And I don't think that's true. Okay. I think you can, you can make a genuine choice even when your will is in some way affected or you could, I don't know if this is a great word to use, but constrained. Right. Um, it's still a genuine choice. Yeah, for sure. So that's uh that's irresistible grace. We'll move on to the last, um, last letter of tulip. P, Which perseverance P. of saints, right? Perseverance of the saints, or I like uh, preservation of the saints. Ah, uh, preservation. Um, Does that make it more God-focused? Either... Yeah, yeah, I just feel like a... that makes it more focused on the work of God, which I is, got you it. know, more truly, more truly Calvinist. I like it. Um, <laughs> so perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints is really just the idea that everyone who's saved, like once saved, always saved. So everyone yep. who is saved by God's grace will always be saved. And it's interesting. A lot of Arminian churches uh, like to hang on to this one. This is the this is the one they won't reject. Yeah. Um. And I I mean not to be too mean, but I, I I think it's inconsistent. I think if you if you don't believe in the other points of Calvinism, if you don't believe uh that is that salvation is a sovereign work of God from start to finish, then I don't think you can have perseverance of the saints because sure. in some way your salvation is dependent on you, unless. Unless you believe that, like, salvation is just, like, say a prayer one time and then you're good. Um, <laughs> I was going to point that out I, for I this mean, point. I don't think either of us think that's true. No, um, and I think I think that's, yeah, I, it's funny you say that. I'll just talk about it now. I was going to wait a second, but, like, I think yeah. there's, there is some danger in this point because when people misunderstand it or don't get it, like, and it, yeah. this goes back to that Soul Winners bit I was talking about, um... Was that earlier or was that on a different episode? I forget. Anyway. We weren't I, even – I think that was before we were even recording. Oh, okay. So we're – but anyway. Um, Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. But Yeah, it's all good. We'll figure it out. 
Uh, <laughs> but the, it's dangerous because people will, like, with that kind of soul winning mentality or whatever that we're talking about, like, oh, if I can get somebody to say these magical words, then they're saved and they'll be good forever. And then they pat themselves on the back and walk mm. away. So that's really dangerous. And I know that's a yeah. oversimplification and a misunderstanding. And I disagree with them. And I know you do too. I just, I was going to point that yeah. out. So it's funny that you did first. Yeah. And I, I think that kind of mentality that like say a prayer and you're good mentality does kind of come from Arminian theology paired with perseverance of the saints, <laughs> preservation of the right. saints. Because, um, because if you don't have election and like, if you don't believe that it's that like, we believe that salvation is assured and that if once saved always saved because we believe that if god has started this work in you that he will carry it out and finish it right and so whereas if if you're an arminian the only way that you can really believe in perseverance of the saints is like well i made this decision once so no matter what i believe later in life or how i feel like that that moment is all that mattered right um it seems like it could be kind of a cop-out Exactly. Whereas Calvinists, you know, we would say someone could seem to be a Christian. There are people who claim to be Christians and later fall away. And it turns out, right, as John says, you know, they go out from us because they were never, they never were one of us. You know, they were, they were never of us in the beginning. Um, but, but so as, as Calvinists, we would say that uh, if God truly saves you, he will carry that work out to completion because it's his election and it's his uh, it's his spirit who has saved you and will continue that work in you. He's not going to start saving you and then just be like, you know what? Never mind. I, this guy isn't. <laughs> this guy isn't working out for me. I, this guy likes this the Colorado Avalanche. Thing. Forget him. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, so that's the five points of Calvinism. In a, you know, we took about like eight minutes per point. I feel like you know, that went longer than I thought it was going to. It's all good. I um, think it was very helpful, even if people disagree. But yeah, like, so. You know, even so, for me, I disagree, but I think it was very helpful. Yeah, hopefully for those of you who don't know much about Calvinism, that gives you a little bit more of a perspective on what Calvinists believe. Uh, one thing, one more thing I wanted to talk about, Josh, which I think we discussed this a little bit before, uh, was kind of the distinction between Calvinism specifically and Reformed theology in general. Yeah, I think that would be really um, helpful. Because I know especially for yeah, me, so, when I was first turned on to Calvinism, I felt that like they were one in the same. And I know, you know, being reformed means, you know, pretty much that you're a Calvinist, but it's not, that's not all there is. It's just a part of it. Yeah. They're not, they're not synonyms. And so that's yeah. important. Like, so a ooh, lot of big times, word. and the thing is, Ooh, synonyms. Synonyms <laughs> means two words that mean the same thing. Um, <laughs> sorry, that was really condescending. I, I shouldn't have defined that word for our audience. That was really funny. <laughs> I liked it. I think they picked up on the humor. Andy and I it's are both very Josh, sarcastic. It's because Josh said "ooh, big word." For the record. <laughs> I was Josh, making fun me. of Andy, uh, and he gave it right back. Oh yeah. <laughs> Except you took it out on um, the audience. I wow. Took it out on the audience. Yeah. Sorry. Um, but <laughs> I love you guys, and I know you know what synonym means. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so so yeah, so Calvinism and Reformed theology they're connected, but they're not the same, and that's important because a lot of times today, if people say Reformed, uh, people just people will call themselves Reformed when really they just believe the five points of Calvinism, right? And that's they're not the same thing. So so when we talk, obviously Calvinism means those five five beliefs about salvation and so it's it's about soteriology it's about god's work in salvation Mm -hmm. and 
um, Reformed theology is a much broader, bigger system of theology. So when I talk about Reformed theology, and there is some some range within Reformed theology, but generally speaking, Reformed theology is the theology of the confessions that came out of the Protestant Reformation. So you have like the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, the the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, all those. There's all these confessions, these theological documents that were written up um, that basically describe a system of theology in the Bible. And they're not all exactly the same, but they're all pretty similar. And what it boils down to really as one of the core elements of Reformed theology is this idea of covenant theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for those of you who might not know what covenant theology is, it's this way of understanding scripture through covenants in that, and I'm not going to be able to explain all of covenant theology in like five minutes, mm-hmm. but, uh, but covenant theology is basically, it's a way of understanding scripture, of understanding the whole Bible in terms of God's covenants, right? And so in the beginning, you have the covenant of works, God's covenant with Adam and Eve, where, you know, they, they stand or fall their relationship with God, their rightness before God is based on whether they obey him. And so that's the covenant of works. And then you have mm-hmm. the covenant of redemption, which um, some Baptists might disagree with me. But as a Presbyterian, I would say the covenant of redemption is what starts with Abraham when God promises, you know, to to make him a great nation and make him a blessing to all nations. And he basically promises the seeds of redemption to Abraham. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sorry. I just actually I just realized I used the wrong terminology. It's the covenant of grace is what I should have said. Okay. So the covenant of grace. So you have the covenant of works in the garden with Adam and Eve. And then you have the covenant of grace uh, that God institutes with Abraham where uh, God gives man the ability to be right with him, not by his works, but by faith. Mm-hmm. And so that's the covenant of grace. And so the covenant of grace is all centered around Jesus sacrificial work on the cross. So even in the old Testament, People are saved by faith that looks forward to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so the covenant of grace is all centered around man is made right with God by faith in Christ. And so in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the covenant of grace, we're saved, we're saved by faith. And so uh, in covenant theology, we believe that uh, Old Testament saints were saved the same way that New Testament saints were saved by faith in Christ. Whereas, uh, you know, other theological systems such as dispensationalism and and other beliefs would divide up (laughs) yeah would divide those things up so covenant theology i know that's might be confusing for you um if you have not heard a lot of that terminology before uh but i would encourage you to look into it but covenant theology this way of interpreting the bible is really what defines reformed theology other defining features of reformed theology which are you know kind of included in calvinism too are you know the sovereignty of God, God's control over all things, God's grace, you know, how God's absolute graciousness in salvation, the fact that salvation is completely a gift of God um, and th- and things like that. So, um, but, but there is a difference. So Reformed theology is this broader theological system, this broader way of interpreting the Bible. And, and Calvinism is just basically a belief about how salvation works. And so um, they're connected if you're if you're reformed in your theology you will be a calvinist but just because you're a calvinist does not mean you're reformed hmm. if that makes sense that yeah it's really it's funny that you say that because i i like i actually really like uh covenant theology i think that's a really cool thing about reformed theology um yeah. because i kind of like the way i view the bible and i think 
I think uh, covenant theology ties into this very much. So, like the Bi- I view the Bible as like an overarching like narrative, like one big story, you know, from start yeah. to finish. And I think the covenants play a role in that because I don't necessarily see it as like Old Testament God's you know plan A failure. New, you know, Jesus is the new guy. I think like the Bible yeah. all points and leads up to that, and I think the covenants are a huge part of it. So I think. I don't know. Yeah. I think that part's really cool. Maybe that makes me just a confused person, but I think <laughs> covenant <laughs> theology is really cool. Yeah. I like it. it I would yeah. definitely encourage people to check it out. Yeah. So, um, and of course, if you want to understand more about reformed theology, I would encourage you, um, to look into, and this might be kind of daunting for some of you, but look into like the Westminster confession of faith. That's what I hold to. It's one of the, these reformed confessions, one of these theological documents, uh, that was written up in the like after the Protestant Reformation. Um, I would also encourage you to go to. There's a great ministry called Ligonier, and I'll link to some of this in the description. Um, but they they have a great series on. It's spelled L I G O N I E R, or is it E I R? No idea. <laughs> I think it's, it's I E R. Ligonier, yeah. They have a great series on like what is Reformed theology. So if you want to explore that a little bit more, I would definitely encourage you to check that out. They talk about the five points of Calvinism in there, but they also go broader. Um, and that's really good stuff. So uh, look into this for yourself. Hopefully this episode has been helpful for those of you who are like, uh, if any of my Reformed brethren are listening, this is probably super boring. I'd be impressed if you made it to this point because you know everything I said. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And maybe you're probably just annoyed because you could have said it better than me. Um, and for those of you who aren't Reformed, hopefully you don't hate me. So, nah. Well, they're graceful people. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully. Thank you. Uh, also, big shout out to Josh for letting me talk a lot more this episode. I talked a lot this episode. No, it's but, good, uh, man. I think it's important. Um, I mean, I could not have talked about Calvinism the way that uh, you did. So I think it was really helpful. Yeah. Um, and but, uh, also, we may be – oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask you. I know about uh, – there's this this bit called the New City Catechism. Would you – Yeah. Would you – are you a fan of that? Would you recommend that? That seems like it might be a little bit less uh, daunting, maybe a little bit easier to grasp onto. I mean, at least at first. Or, yeah. Or, or no. Yeah, so that's another – that's another great uh, resource. I do I do like the New City Catechism. I'm actually going through the devotional uh, with my wife right now. Oh, sweet. Um, they also have a really cool yeah, app so for it. I re- it's really well do done. It's really it. well done. Yeah. So, and this is going to lead us into a whole other thing. So, <laughs> for those of you who might not know, a catechism is basically a set of questions and answers that's designed to teach you theology. Yeah. Um, so, the Westminster Confession, the theological document, has catechisms that go along with it, which are pretty long. And, you know, they're kind of in older English. Uh, they're great resources, though. But the New City Catechism is a newer catechism that was created uh to help teach people basically reform theology but in a more modern uh condensed form so the new city catechism has 52 questions whereas uh the westminster shorter catechism the short one <laughs> has 107 i think the long <laughs> i don't know for sure i think the longer one has like 140 something so it's, it's a big difference so um that's a great resource as well the new city catechism for sure sweet all right. Well, we've gone on. I've I've rambled a lot today. Um, <laughs> couple uh, quick things as we're wrapping up. If you have any questions, uh, if you want to fight me, 
virtually, not physically. I don't want to fight you physically, but if you wanna, if you wanna argue with me, <laughs> uh, if you wanna tell Josh how awesome you think he is, yeah. if you wanna tell him uh, to ditch me and find a different co-host, you know, <laughs> if you wanna communicate with us at all, uh, you can go to our website, which is theologydoesn'tsuck.com, dot com, and you can go to the contact us page. You can send us a message. We'll uh, hopefully get back to you in a timely manner. Um, we'd also encourage you to check out other things on the website, old episodes, blog posts, etc. Et um, et also, speaking of online things, Josh, you're managing something online. Yeah, we are trying to. <laughs> we have an Instagram trying feed to. now. Um, it's at Theology Doesn't Suck. Uh, so anytime there's a new episode, you know, we throw something up on there. Um, you know, I'm looking into different ways to help make that page a little bit more engaging. Um you know, so we're working on that, but definitely go give us a follow. Check us out on Instagram. And then also, Andy, another mm-hmm. way to engage something that we talked about, and they can use the website to do this. Uh, we had the idea to um, do like a Q&A kind of episode uh, for some of our what? listeners. Yeah, so you, you may have heard us mention this in the past couple episodes um, that just came out. But we are going to be doing a Q&A episode, a question and answer episode coming up. Um, and you need to, it's going to be coming out in January on January 16th. I want to say is the day it's going to be coming out that or the, uh, and so around there. Yeah. Is, yeah. So mid January and, uh, we would love to hear some of your theology questions or it could just be questions about anything really, just any question you have, but especially theology is appreciated. Um, <laughs> and, and we want to answer them. So, we need all of the questions submitted by January 10th uh, so that we have time to look at them and answer them. Um, but if you can submit your question, you can submit it on our website, like Josh mentioned, Yep. Uh, at theologydoesn'tsuck.com. I mean, you can try to submit it other ways, like Instagram or something else, but we're not as likely to see it if you contact us other ways. So if you can, contact us through our website, theologydoesn'tsuck.com, on the contact page. Uh, we would love to get your questions, love to hear what you're curious about so that we can answer it in our Q&A episode. Yeah, and be sure to make the distinction, too, that it's a question that you'd like uh, answered on the episode, not just uh, you know a question you want an email response yeah. to. Yeah, because we do email responses as well, so feel free to ask us questions uh, for an email response. But if you want to submit it, that's good, Josh. Thanks for pointing that out. If yeah, you, yeah. If you want to submit a question for the Q&A episode, make sure you say that in the message that we know it's not for us to email you about, but it's for the episode. So thank you so much for listening. Um, We have some exciting episodes coming out. I am not sure off the top of my head what's coming up. All sorts of cool stuff. All sorts of, all sorts of cool stuff is coming up. So all the best. uh, Thank you for joining us. All, all the best (laughs) episodes all the time. Uh, Thank you so much. We, we really appreciate you guys listening. So uh, visit us online, and we will see you next week. Deuces.